Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod is the Surrey Policing Debate. Irrelevant sources now say the federal government wants to turn the Mounties into Canada's FBI and hand over policing to the provinces. And I'm pro-immigration, but it's a phrase increasingly used by Vancouverites. We ask, what is the right number of newcomers to welcome to Canada? And as BC records some of its highest average temperatures, what legal protection do employees have working in extreme heat? That's coming up on the Jazz Joe Hall Show right after the 3 o'clock news. The provincial government announced it will be expanding its crisis response team to nine communities. It will spend $3 million on the program, uh, which will partner healthcare workers with police to respond to mental health related calls. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Jennifer Whiteside, BC's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Ms. Whiteside, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Good afternoon, Jazz. Good afternoon. I know you made the decision or the announcement uh, earlier today uh, in uh, in uh, the Fraser Valley. Uh, talk to me a little bit about why you need to be expanding this program. Yeah, you know, what we're really finding, Jazz, is that um, uh, we're a lot from police around the um, the degree to which they are increasingly being pulled into calls that involve mental health issues. So individuals in some form of experiencing some form of mental distress. In fact, about one in five interactions in BC uh, with police involves someone with a mental health disorder. And so this is in part um, based on what we know is working in a number of other communities where they have these integrated teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's responding to what we've heard both from municipalities and law enforcement and, and healthcare as well, that, th- that this is a more appropriate approach to trying to address uh, mental health issues. So where are you expanding to uh, as of today? Um, are expanding to Abbotsford, Port Coquitlam and Coquitlam, Penticton, Burnaby, Chilliwack, Vernon, Squamish, Prince Rupert, and the West Shore on Vancouver Island. Now, my understanding is there's about uh, 10 other communities uh, in British Columbia that have a similar program, Victoria, Surrey, uh, Vancouver, Mm -hmm. including Kamloops as well. Mm -hmm. Is there a desire to make this the norm uh, province-wide? Well, you know, what I would... Hey, Jazz, is that I think what we're seeing is that we need, we really need a continuum. We have, uh, when we, when uh, people are experiencing uh, some kind of mental distress, whether that's as a result of a mental, uh, mental disorder or whether it's a result of a substance use issue or something, something's not going right. Um, there are times when it might be appropriate to have a, um, a peer-assisted care team, which is another program that we've, been, that we've begun to scale up over the last couple of years. And I just made an announcement a few weeks ago about expanding that program as well. Mm-hmm. And that is a team that involves um, peers working with mental health workers to engage and de-escalate in, um, in, in circumstances that, that are appropriate, where we don't require police to be, to be present. And then if we move up, up the sort of acuity scale to a situation that's maybe a bit more complex, 
Um, we have mobile uh, um, integrated crisis teams that involve a police law enforcement paired with a mental health professional. Mm-hmm. And those situations might be a bit more complex. Um, and then, of course, there are situations where we just we really need a policing response because there's a serious, you know, um, um, public safety danger. Um What is driving this in your mind? I mean, beyond just COVID, some have talked about, but, you know, 10 years ago, uh, I wouldn't be having this conversation with a Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Uh, Perhaps it would be a health minister, but generally we didn't talk about these types of things very often in the media and and, in our personal lives. What do you think is driving a lot of this now, which is actually impacting policy and how we spend tax dollars? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question, Jazz. And I think, you know, if I just sort of go, go back to my, uh, my, my, my former life before politics, working, uh, working with unions and healthcare with healthcare workers, you know, I, we were in a time pre-COVID where we were starting to really recognize the impact of, um, of mental health issues on the workplace, for example. Mm-hmm. We were de- had developed national standards. I think we were starting to really understand that, you know, people are whole people. They come with all of the you know, all of their concerns and issues and, and, and conditions, they sort of bring those with them wherever they go. And we really need to be responsive as a society, as a community, and, you know, in workplaces everywhere to, um, to support people um, with, uh, with the challenges that they may be experiencing. You know, and then the pandemic hit, mm-hmm. and that really just um, really sent the um, uh, issues related to anxiety um, and and a mental distress in some circumstances uh, just really really exacerbated that. And mm-hmm. so you know these responses are very much trying to respond to what people are experiencing in their communities, sort of what they see on the streets. You know, people they might be concerned and concerned about who maybe aren't 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 getting connections to care that they need. And that's what these teams can really help with. And, and in fact, what we heard from frontline providers, uh, from the nurse who staffs one of the the Surrey teams. Um, is that she spends a lot of her shifts um, working, um, supported with uh, with law enforcement to um, connect, really connect, to connect people to care, mm-hmm. and to make sure that they're, uh, you know, that they're getting continuity of care. Uh, I mean, just speaking specifically with the about the Met- Metro Vancouver for a moment, you got Vancouver, Surrey, which are already communities that were uh, had existing programs, but you throw mm-hmm. in Abbotsford, Port Coquitlam, Coquitlam, uh, Burnaby, mm-hmm. and like you said, Chilliwack as well. That's most of the Lower Mainland beyond the North mm-hmm. Shore and a couple of other uh, pockets here and there. But it mm-hmm. does speak to the, just the size of this problem when literally every municipality now uh, inevitably is probably going to head in this direction where there will be healthcare workers working with police to respond to some of these calls. Yeah, I think what I think what we want to do also is ensure that our policing resources are used in appropriate ways, and that our policing resources are used to um, to deal with issues that um, that that require uh, a law enforcement um, approach. You know, whether it's you know criminal activity, uh, 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 for example. Um, and so this is also very much about ensuring that we're that we're sort of bringing the right team, the right providers, the right response to the right place at the right time. Um, so it's an, really an expansion of, you know, recognizing that, you know, men, mental health distress doesn't just happen in our ERs. It doesn't just happen in acute care. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to make sure that when um, people are either in their homes, because some of this care is also provided to people in their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we need to make sure that when, when people are in distress, we have the right, the right sort of um, kind of trauma-informed response to it. Minister, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jazz. You probably heard during the newscast that uh, the Surrey policing decision will be coming down at 12 noon 
on Wednesday. Today's uh, announcement uh, comes as a Toronto Star uh, reporting that uh, their sources say that Justin Trudeau wants to transform the RCMP uh, to the point where the RCMP would be Canada's version of the FBI, uh, focusing more on cybersecurity, national security issues, and to shift the focus away from local policing that would be handed over to the provinces. So uh, the RCMP would handle issues around national security, terrorism, financial crime, cybercrime, organized crime, uh, and the provinces uh, over the long term uh, would handle policing for their respective jurisdictions. Joining me now to talk a little bit about that issue is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Richard, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so this uh, uh, article today in the Toronto Star is very interesting. And I know uh, Mike Farnworth and Assistant Commissioner Maureen Levy uh, were at a press conference earlier today on a separate issue. Uh, they were asked about this. Let's take a listen to, to what both of, the, both of them had to say on the issue. Police reform is an important issue, and it's an issue at the local level, the provincial level, and at the national level. Um, I know at the national level, the, uh, my federal counterpart, the federal minister, it's in his mandate letter uh, to look at uh, uh, review uh, uh, contract policing uh, in the same way that uh, similar uh, uh, things are in, are in my mandate letter in the terms of the future of policing in British Columbia. We are the provincial police force in uh, British Columbia, and we work in close concert with our municipal partners, our communities, our municipalities to make sure that uh, uh, we provide the best possible service for public safety. So really, uh, you know, dancing around the issue uh, at, at this moment, and I don't and I understand why, because it is, these are just initial reports, but uh, first and foremost, this is not a new idea, is it? No, it's not a new idea, and it's something that, as the minister described there, is in Federal Minister Marco Mendicino's uh, mandate letters to look at the role of the RCMP. And we know that the contract expires in 2032. The premiers weighed in on this last week when they all met together in Winnipeg. And one of the things that they said universally across the table is they are all suffering from dramatic staffing shortages within the RCMP. And clearly the current mandate for the RCMP is not working for a lot of jurisdictions. And having police forces that are woefully understaffed undermines public safety and premier after premier including our premier david Eby, raised these issues around the premier's table and the fact that this story has come out through sources in the toronto star uh, this week is not surprising this is a pivotal week for the rcmp the surrey detachment is its largest community police force what that looks like moving forward is going to help dictate the conversation around urban policing for the RCMP. And the fact that the federal government is seriously considering completely overhauling its mandate is a crucial piece that Mike Farnworth needs to weigh when making a determination. Will he keep the RCMP with the fact that maybe a decade down the road, the RCMP no longer polices in communities at all? So maybe it's better to pull off the Band-Aid now, move towards the Surrey Police Service, take on those additional costs, and allow for a smoother transition down the road. If it's inevitable, the RCMP will no longer be funded to 
police uh, in different communities. Mm-hmm. And as you said, 2032, it's not like it's happening tomorrow. This would be, if it were to ever happen, it would be a, a very, very slow uh, transition, which I think it needs to be when we're talking about law enforcement uh, in, in our country. Any sense, uh, Richard, why we've got to this point of staffing shortages with the RCMP? I'm not talking about, you know, a little here, a little there. This is, seems to be a systemic challenge, and these things don't just happen one day. This takes many, many years to get to this point. Yeah, it's a combination of a number of things. The RCMP is not immune to the same challenges all employers are having. The fact that uh, the baby boomers are retiring, those who are invested in career-long policing are retiring, and the force is struggling to recruit new officers. There's a culture within the RCMP that a lot of officers do not want to get involved with. And one of the other concerns that has been raised a number of times is the fact the RCMP moves officers around to different areas. So you may establish your family in one community and they get moved off to another community. It's hard on families to do that, obviously. The RCMP does that less and less now, uh, but that was a growing concern that wasn't caught on fast enough by the Mounties and led to some of these concerns. But it's internal strife. uh, It's uh, attrition over age and all of those things the RCMP has not been able to modernize and keep up. And that's why you're seeing this massive shortfall while you're seeing, you know, uh, it's a longer um, build up time, training time to get into the RCMP. So for some entrants, it's easier to get into a local police force. So all of those factors combined have led to some of these real serious staffing challenges we see at the RCMP. Mm-hmm. Now, Premier Daniel Smith in Alberta, even prior to this, uh, the, their provincial election uh, had mused and talked about a provincial police force and studying in Alberta. Uh, force at one time. This sounds great on paper, but if BC were to go down this route, uh, and there's different models, you could have a Metro Vancouver force, a Vancouver Island force, and the rest of BC force, which would all be under one provincial uh, uh, police program, but with it means dollars. Is there any conversation about dollars and any sense of how much that would actually cost the province? Yeah, we know that there are short-term dollars on the table when it comes to moving towards with the Surrey Police Service to help absorb some of those costs when it comes to property taxes, but no real conversation yet on transitioning out entirely. And that ending of the contract of 2032 is crucial because clearly one of the substantial costs associated with any type of change like this, Jazz, are the sort of severance costs that you need to pay to buy people out of their positions. Uh, and then obviously trying to figure out those transitions in terms of moving contracts from one force to another force. So it's unclear how much it would cost. But if we move towards this sort of federal model where the RCMP oversees you know, federal investigations and local policing is left to municipal forces, there will be federal money transferred off uh, based on the percentage of RCMP officers currently on the ground. So BC, where we have the highest number of RCMP officers doing community policing, would get a higher percentage of that funding than, say, Quebec or Ontario, where you have almost none of that, uh, sparring some highway patrol and, and other specialized forces at a provincial level. You know, on the, on the surface of it, it doesn't sound like a bad idea. And I'm not even talking about local policing, but when I look at you know, cybercrime, financial crime, 
terrorism, national security. It's not about um, a traditional-looking Mountie that you need to hire. You actually need to hire data experts. You need to hire accountants uh, when it comes to financial crime. I mean, when was the last time yeah. this country put a high-profile business person behind bars? I mean, in the U.S., they literally do it every week. I mean, Martha Stewart went to jail, for God's sakes, you know? Anybody they can catch, they'll throw behind bars when it comes to financial crime. Uh, I remember covering stories. as a report in the 90s where, uh, you know, uh, had those at E-Division would say it's hard for them to even get a case put together to put somebody away, never mind, uh, uh, you know, the resources that are required to do so. One could argue this is the right way to go, and the RCMP can start hiring not just police officers, more importantly, accountants, data experts, uh, you know, terrorism experts, not saying they don't have them, but they don't have the depth that is needed to actually deal with the real threats that we uh, face every single day in this country. And and investigating is getting harder and harder. And doing these types of forensic audits, as you described, is harder and harder. Criminals are getting smarter. They're taking advantage of new technology. And by using that new technology, they are keeping up. And police forces need to respond to that. They need to hire the best of the best in understanding how to do all of this. And that is one of the things that the RCMP is clearly looking at, is if you have an intense focus solely on doing these massive federal investigations, you can fund and spend to find those specialist officers, but also, as you mentioned, technicians, IT folks, forensic auditors, all of these things that are needed uh, to catch these criminals who are finding new places. You know, it's not about showing up at banks anymore with some guns and telling them to put their hands up and grabbing a few bags of cash and getting in a getaway car. Crime is much more complex now, like so many things in terms of online attacks, cyber attacks, uh, these sort of mass fraud investigations, as you mentioned. So keeping up with those criminals is challenging and, and, you know, potentially a consolidated force like this would help uh, do some of that work that's needed. Hey, at the end of the day, Al Capone was caught by the accountants and not law enforcement (laughs) per se. So you never forget that. Never forget (laughs) that. That's for sure. Richard, thank you for your time. And by the way, before we go, uh, the decision, uh, the announcement on Wednesday, uh, your thoughts, uh, not that I'm going to hold it, hold you against, hold hold it against you, but does it look like it, uh, the thinking is it'll be SPS? It's looking pretty clear that the province is leaning towards the Surrey Police Service. There have clearly been conversations with the city of Surrey. I think you'll hear Public Safety Minister Mike Fern will talk a lot about working with the city towards this transition. There may be some ways to accommodate more resources in the short term to the RCMP, but we will see. I, I expect the minister to say that he is moving forward with the Surrey Police Service and hopes Uh, that the city comes with them and will say that they just did not meet the conditions that were needed in order to ensure public safety largely tied in to these massive uh, staffing issues that we were talking about. Richard, thank you. Yeah, Jazz, my pleasure. We'll talk soon. Well, I don't know about you, but I've been hearing a, a phrase quite consistently over the last little while. It goes like this, I'm pro immigration, but, and the but is followed up with, uh, Health care issues, transportation issues, financial issues, housing issues. People are concerned uh, with the amount of people we are inviting to Canada. Now, Canada has regularly welcomed over 200,000 immigrants per year since 1980. 
88. Now, in recent years, it's decided to increase its level to well over 400,000 people. Now, Canada's immigration rate now stands at nearly 1.2% of its yearly population. But if you really crunch the numbers, what that means is Canada welcomes three times more immigrants on a per capita basis than the United States. There is 465,000 uh, permanent residents coming to uh, to Canada in 2023, and four, it'd be 485,000 in 2024, and then we hit 500,000 immigrants coming to Canada in 2025. Now, recently, Desjardins looked at the issue of immigration, and they asked a simple question. What's the right number of newcomers to welcome to Canada when it comes to the context to our economy, our aging population, our health care system? Joining me now to talk a little bit about this report that was released today is Randall Bartlett, Senior Director of Canadian Economics with Desjardins. Randall, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, is there a right number when it comes to newcomers you, we should welcome to Canada? I know it's a tough question and it's very difficult to pinpoint a number. Um, but when you looked, uh, when you were preparing this study, setting up this study, um, was there a number you were hoping to have it you, you would find or uh, get to? Or, or was this a broader conversation about uh, the parameters and issues that drive uh, how many uh, newcomers we want uh, to let in the country? Yeah, it's very much that broader conversation about what are the economic implications of immigration in Canada. And so, you know, we looked at the very short term and what, uh, what you know, immigration means for helping to address labor market shortages in Canada, um, as well as the implications for the housing market as we have a lot of new newcomers coming to the country. Uh, but then we also looked at, you know, the longer term implications. What does it mean for, uh, as the Canadian population ages? And uh, economic growth slows because of an aging population and uh, healthcare costs rise. How much immigration do we need to offset some of that aging impact? So we tried to break it down into both um, the, the short-term and long-term economic implications to get a sense of what are the considerations we should be thinking about as, uh, as Canadians as uh, we're uh, having a converse, broader conversation about immigration and the impact it's having on the economy. So let's focus on the short-term just for a second here. Uh, it- is our immigrants having a detrimental I- impact uh, on Canada? And what I mean by that is on issues where, uh, you know, there's concerns over housing, transportation, uh, absorbing all these immigrants, so many of them at one time. Is that detrimental uh, to us in the short term? Well, I think there are a couple of considerations. I mean, we look at, we need to think about people coming to Canada, not just as uh, immigrants or permanent residents, which are actually a fairly small uh, portion of the newcomers that are coming to Canada right now. Um, about three quarters of the people coming to Canada in the last year were non-permanent residents. So that's people that are coming up either at the request of an employer to fill a short-term labor market need or they're foreign students. And so um, those non-permanent residents, which have been the bulk of the newcomers coming in lately, um, you know, they're coming to meet that short-term economic need. And we're still seeing that uh, there are labor shortages in Canada, across the country and across industries. And so, um, so that would suggest that really we're still seeing these labor shortages and these folks have really just come to, to, to meet that, that, that short-term demand. Um, but they are putting a lot of pressure in the near term on things like housing and infrastructure. And that's because we can't build housing as quickly as we can bring people into the country. And so we're just not seeing the housing market respond uh, to the newcomers coming in. And part of that is the fact that interest rates are at the highest level they've been in two decades. 
Uh, inflation until recently was near at the highest level it had been in four decades. And uh, certainly that's, you know, fed into the cost of housing as well and then building housing. And we're still seeing that, you know, we, we're still seeing a shortage of skilled tradespeople across this country. And so really, you know, we're, we're seeing these two different economic effects that a lot of newcomers are coming to the country because of economic need and labor shortages, but also they're putting upward pressure on things like housing and infrastructure as we can't build it fast enough to accommodate them. Uh, this, uh, this need to invite uh, so many people to this country uh, because of the short-term consideration, I think most Canadians would understand that. But can this, should this be, can this be sustained, I guess is the, the question. I mean, uh, to have that many students, so I can just walk out of this building today and walk to my car and I can run into probably three or four sets of students either working or, or out uh, enjoying the day. Uh, this is short-term, is my thinking, because I, I can't see this country being able to sustain that many students um, for even five more years. Well, it's, it's a real challenge for a lot of post-secondary institutions in particular. And we've seen that, you know, Canada has the highest rate of post-secondary completion in, in the OECD or one of the highest in the OECD. Uh, we have a very well-educated young uh, population. So our, our youth today are actually, and we've written extensively on this as well, mm-hmm. are among the best educated on the planet. Um, but these folks who are coming in, part of that, and I, I can tell you about Ontario, I don't know the specifics of, of British Columbia in this regard, but uh, often universities and other post-secondary institutions are, are struggling on the revenue side of things. And so they're looking to foreign students to help shore up revenue. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, foreign students have, have filled a big part of the gap in terms of the funding structure for post-secondary institutions. And so there is this bit of a trade-off where, yes, this is absolutely putting pressure on on uh, housing, and it's um, but these folks are also uh, helping to support post-secondary institutions, which Canadian-born uh, students are benefiting from. And they're also helping to fill some of the labor market gaps that we're seeing as well coming out of the pandemic. So it is, it is uh, a both-and kind of thing. It's not, uh, not either or. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much immigration do you think we need to offset that impact of aging? And we always talk about an aging population needing young people to, to pay for our health care system or pension system. Um, how much immigration do you think we need to offset uh, the impact of aging. Well, it, again, it's it's a, it's a nuanced question in the sense that uh, we would need the working age population using the sort of middle of the road projection from StatsCan. Uh, we'd need to have uh, working age population grow on average about 2.2 percent annually through 2040 to off to to keep the the share of people 65 and over um, relative to those. 15 to 64 stable. So that's your old age dependency ratio. To keep that fairly constant, you need an average uh, average of growth in the working age population about 2.2% a year. We're seeing that all of the growth in the working age population now is coming from immigration. And that's going to continue as boomers continue to leave the labor force. Uh, and there's not the, uh, there's not the uh, young population coming in to, to fill them fill that gap in the same numbers. And so we need immigration to, uh, to fill that void. Um, and so, but that again um, is a, is is quite a, a substantial number, and ultimately does have impacts on the housing market. And again, would continue to sort of erode, erode housing affordability in Canada. So it's a real challenge. How much uh, how much future cost are we willing? Additional future cost are we willing to bear as a result of aging as a population? And how much of and how much additional cost 
uh, in terms of uh, in terms of housing affordability are we willing to bear? There is this bit of a trade-off unless we're able to build that much more housing and 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 really make that rapidly come online, mm-hmm. which has proven a challenge in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, are the are immigrants uh, helping to grow our GDP overall? I mean, is that usually we talk about you know continue to build the economy? Uh, the overall implications of immigration on Canada's potential GDP, are they a net positive? Yeah, immigrants, uh, according to our analysis, are a net positive for potential GDP growth. A big part of the reason is they tend to be young, so that's a big part of it. And so as people age, they tend to work less, and so they contribute less to overall economic activity. Uh, new immigrants who are coming in and newcomers to Canada generally are, tend to be younger, and so they work they work more, and that helps to contribute to overall GDP. Uh, the other thing is that depending on the class of immigrants um, or even non-permanent residents, uh, there are a lot of folks coming in who are highly skilled, highly educated, speak English and French, uh, English and or, or sorry or French, and are able to find jobs very quickly and actually start earning incomes very quickly that are actually above those of the uh, the average Canadian. And so. A lot, particularly the economic immigrant stream, stream has shown significant labor market success, and that success just continues to improve with every passing year. And so, um, so certainly they are contributing positively to uh, potential GDP growth of the country, and our analysis shows on a per capita basis as well, which is something that um, is going to help support. Uh, uh, sustained uh, higher living standards going forward. Mr. Bartlett, thank you so much for your time. It was a good read and uh, certainly a report that uh, taps into the zeitgeist of the moment. It's certainly the issue those of us in our major cities are talking about. So really thank you for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk a little bit about the weather. Well, Italian health officials um, intensified heat warnings today as southern Europe will begin a brutal hot week with temperatures expected to top 40 degrees Celsius. Uh, countries with borders on the Mediterranean Sea weren't alone in suffering, of course. Authorities in North Macedonia extended a heat alert for the next 10 days with temperatures predicted uh, to be around 43 degrees Celsius. Rome itself is bracing for temperatures as high as 42 degrees Celsius uh, tomorrow. Uh, animals were stressed as well. Italian farm lobby Coldaretti noted that cows were producing around 10% less milk uh, due to the heat. In recent weeks, we've seen Earth's highest ever temperatures uh, recorded when it comes to climate. Just think about for a moment if you're out working uh, in that temperature, uh, what impact that would have on, let's say, farm workers or roofers or delivery personnel. Perhaps you're working uh, in a, um, a job where there's no air conditioning as well. So it got us to thinking what are the rules and regulations around working in a heat dome or working when there are uh, heat events like we're seeing in Southern Europe today. Joining me now to talk a little bit about your rights and heat is Jeff Mason, Employment and Human Rights Lawyer at Miller Thompson LLP. Jeff, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah, I, I thought of you the other day and I said, you know, as I was reading this article in the Washington Post and it was specific to uh, America and uh, their rights and rules around heat. Uh, and I think between 2017 and 2022, about 121 workers died in that country and it was directly attributed to heat but many believe it was a lot higher because sometimes heat related deaths uh, are blamed on other workplace uh, accidents or other conditions so just to i guess to start first and foremost 
Does an employee have the right to say, look, it's going to hit 38 degrees, 40 degrees today. Uh, I'm not going to come into work. I just don't feel comfortable. I don't feel safe. And, and, I, and, and I think it's too dangerous. Can an employee do that? Yeah, so employees have, have a general right to to refuse unsafe work, and that, that applies obviously outside of just the extreme weather context, but it, it, it applies just as much um, in, in the context of extreme heat. Um, and that's that's coupled with, you know, other obligations that employers have to to try to prevent and, and mitigate those risks. But that um, that that kind of core right for employees to refuse unsafe work uh, that that would also apply to to extreme heat events. How would that happen, though? Like if I if I'm a contractor and I'm heading out and, and someone says, look, we're working on this home today, I'm a roofer. Uh, do I just say no, I can't because uh, the weather forecast says it's going to be 40 degrees today and I, I don't feel comfortable working in that environment? Well, it, I mean, how, how it plays out and, and how it should play out are, are often two different things. Um, you know, in a, in a perfect world, uh, an employee makes a, a reasonable decision based off of the actual health risks, not just sort of a, a discomfort in the heat. They, they let their employer know about that. The the employer responds reasonably and, and doesn't require the employee to work until the the risk is is eliminated or, or mitigated. I think one of the, the the challenges with heat is that it's not always clear or there's not always a bright line when that heat goes from you know being a an issue of employee comfort and goes to actually being a, a workplace safety risk. Um, and and to that end, that's that's sort of why. Um, at least in British Columbia, uh, WorkSafe BC and the Occupational Health and Safety Regulations require employers to actually take more of a, a proactive stance on on addressing those risks. So it's not all just sort of left to the employee to have to make that assessment themselves and um, and you know be put in the rather uncomfortable position sometimes of having to uh, refuse unsafe work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would that here in British Columbia be uh, provincial ordinances? Because I I recall. In places like uh, Texas, uh, I think Dallas and Austin, the cities, those two cities, had ordinances uh, around heat safety, and I think the the state government came along and stripped them uh, of those rules uh, because they felt that local authorities uh, were just stepping out of bounds, um, and uh, some of the, uh, the conditions that they were uh, introducing were too burdensome on employers. Uh, in this case, would it be the province then driving all of this, not the, not the municipal governments? Yeah, I, I can tell you there are plenty of differences between how Texas handles that issue and, and, and DC. But one of them, <laughs> one of them is definitely uh, is the, the the issue of jurisdiction. That's all dealt with provincially here. There is for for workers working in federally regulated industries, so airlines, banking, telecommunications, things like that. There's there's separate federal legislation that that deals with the same things, but. For provincially regulated employees working in provincially regulated industries, that would all be dealt with uh, by by the provincial government. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you say, look, this is uh, the it's regulated under the provincial uh, with WorkSafe BC, but do you know of any case where people have said, uh, "I don't feel comfortable in heat, and I'm not going to come in," or have worked with employers to perhaps have some time off during set time of the day when the heat may be at its peak? I mean, do you know of any incidents where people have said, you know what, I'm not coming in or I'm not going to be working for a few hours because of the heat? Well, th- those I wouldn't say aren't the 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 most striking or sexiest decisions to uh, to read. Um, there's there's plenty out there, but, you know, just as a, as a matter of practice, the issue comes up all the time. 
Um, and, you know, there's there's kind of a, a strict legal approach that you can uh, take when looking at it, as I was kind of discussing earlier, you know, when, when the heat gets to the level of actually creating, um, you know, a, an actual health hazard. And in the context of WorkSafe BC, they kind of look at the risk of heat stress as being that threshold. So the point at which the human body get up, gets up to 38 degrees Celsius or more, and it can't shed heat as much as it's taking it on. That's, you know, when, when you look at it from a strict legal angle, um, it's, it, those are kind of the, the issues you're dealing with when it actually rises to the level of a, a health risk. Um, but, you know, from, a, from just sort of a, a, a human perspective, a, a lot of employers don't want to kind of address it as a purely legal issue. You know, if an employee comes up to them and says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling uncomfortable today. Um, I, you know, they're not going to be really making an assessment of what was this person actually have heat stress? Is it, is it rising to that, to that level? Most, most times it's just dealt with from kind of a common sense perspective and, and employers are, at least in my experience, you know, willing to kind of give employees the, the benefit of the doubt. And, and in a lot of cases, you know, employers are, at least in BC, um, trying to take steps proactively to, to prevent uh, those very situations where employees have to come uh, and, and, and ask for relief in the first place. Do you see this uh, turning into a national issue uh, as climate change uh, continues and we are seeing some of these um, uh, events, uh, uh, you know, uh, much more prevalent and the heat being much more intensive. I know President Biden, I think, uh, ordered uh, their national uh, organization, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to begin drafting a heat standard uh, for labor inspectors. Uh, do you see something like that or at least a, some sort of national um, standard? I know you said it's provincial, but a national standard that perhaps this is what we should all be looking at because these events are going to be perhaps uh, happening a lot more. And when they do happen, mm-hmm. it'll be much more intense because already you know, on, on this show, we've talked to local officials who are talking about whether or not we should be introducing local legislation where landlords are responsible for providing a cooling system just as they are responsible for providing a heating system uh, when they rent out apartments and, and, and other, uh, and, and other uh, uh, housing. So it, it is that conversation that is now sort of percolating. Do you see a national standard or national conversation happening around this? Well, I mean, this is an issue that's that's not going anywhere, and it's it's going to get get worse year by year. Um, and it's it's a national issue already in the sense that it, it affects every everyone in the country. Now, whether or not it requires some sort of federal intervention or some sort of federal standard, um, that that's a bit of a different question. I mean, as I said, every every provincial jurisdiction in Canada and at the federal level has their own legislation that's that's dealing with this. There might be subtle differences between them but but in substance they're they're all kind of trying to address the same thing and i i think you know most governments are making a good faith effort of doing that and, and the legislation's been fairly effective i don't think you necessarily need you know absolute symmetry from province to province and i think you know one of the reasons why you might see that happening in the united states is because you don't have that same sort of uh, state by state approach being taken as you see in Canada. Um, but Texas is a great example, right? You, you have other other states like Florida um, that are are actually taking steps to curtail this type of legislation, which in in the context of uh, climate change just to me seems absolutely insane. In that in that sort of 
circumstance, I could see how you might need some sort of federal level intervention just to get all of the different uh, state jurisdictions to to get up to speed. In Canada, I, I don't think that's as much of a problem. Well, it's an interesting conversation, and I think, as you say, it is going to be one with us for a very long time. Jeff, as always, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Jess. Argentine soccer star Lionel Messi was officially unveiled as an inter-Miami player at an extravagant event in Florida last night, kicking off the next stage of his storied career and bringing one of the world's most recognizable and bankable athletes to North America. Messi was revealed to a sold-out crowd in Miami. Around 20,000 people braved summer storms to greet the star. Uh, Take a listen to the excitement. I would like to introduce to you Tonight is a typical Miami welcome for one of the greatest players to ever have played the game. And the fact that we have our fans in here celebrating this moment. That was, of course, David Beckham, uh, English soccer star and uh, part owner of Inter Miami as well. Well, Joining me now to talk a little bit about Leo Messi's impact on Major League Soccer and whether or not we can see him play uh, the Vancouver Whitecaps right here in Vancouver. We're joined now by Blake Price. He's a play-by-play announcer for the MLS on Apple TV and, of course, co-host of the Zacharis and Price show at ZacharisandPrice.com. Blake, thank you for joining us today. Anytime. Uh, this spectacle, it's, uh, Mr. Messi hasn't even played a game for Render Miami and already, uh, you're seeing fireworks and uh, a huge, uh, um, I, I guess, uh, unveiling of the star. What did you make of it? Well, I, I think it's, it's obviously notable and I think it's deserved. I mean, there has been this thrown out there and I think I might agree with it. This might be the most uh, important and consequential uh, signing of an athlete in North American sports history. Uh, I mean, this is the most global of all the sports uh, with the most reach, the most acclaim, the most money uh, around it. And we're talking about the sport of soccer. And to have arguably the greatest player of all time, in my opinion, he is, um, descend upon Major League Soccer here with some years left. I mean, he's older by ordinary athletic standards, but he still has years to give. I mean, he's fresh off a World Cup victory, for heaven's sakes. Um, it's uh, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for the industry. It's a big deal for fans who get a chance to see a guy um, in his, uh, again, in his prime might be overstating it, but still with a lot of ability left. Um, this is, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. How does a team like Inter-Miami uh, remotely play in the big leagues compared to a lot of the teams uh, in Europe to actually land him? Well, there's been a lot of concessions, some public, some maybe not so public, uh, as to how this all comes to pass and whether or not it even uh, usurps the collective bargaining agreement between uh, the franchises in, in Major League Soccer and the players and, and all that. Major League Soccer does not operate like a lot, well, most of the free soccer world, if you will. Uh, it has a cap of sorts, a salary cap of sorts with exceptions for certain amounts of players. And there's the ability to even use coupons, if you can believe it or not. Uh, they call them uh, allocation money. And you can actually use these coupons to pay down a player and take them out of that exception rule. So it's complicated, like most collective bargaining agreements are. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but you know they they couldn't just back up the Brinks truck really and and say hey here's X number of dollars like you know some of the the Saudi teams were ready to do and uh, other Middle Eastern teams so it, it's uh, it's a little bit more complicated but with the promise of of uh, you know lucrative endorsement deals in addition to to general salary and and possibly ownership down the road as well. Uh, you know, it was too good to be true. And I think it just, he wanted the challenge. I think Lionel Messi wanted the challenge of conquering North America. Not mm-hmm. too much uh, different than uh, David Beckham did way back in the day. Yeah, David Beckham, I can think uh, even earlier than that, Pele, I think it was the New York Cosmos. Sure. I think, yeah. I, yeah, I, got, the, I, think I got that name right. And uh, um, you're right. It's always been that one market. Where do you think soccer is in North America? I mean, uh, superficially or even just watching anecdotally you can feel you know there's a soccer community here uh, it's very well connected uh, fervent but is it growing in your mind is there a certain growth we're finally seeing in soccer that perhaps many felt would have come decades earlier absolutely uh, on the, the latter part there it, it's amazing it has taken this long um, I mean, we have a busy sports calendar. I guess that's the biggest reason for it. Um, there's lots going on. We have uh, American and Canadian football that the rest of the world does not. We have baseball that the rest of the world really doesn't to any significant degree. So uh, we're spread pretty thin already. Uh, but it, it's, it was weird that the world's biggest sport wasn't a bigger part of our lives. Now, you know, grassroots soccer has always been there for uh, Americans and Canadians, but it hasn't translated uh, to professional ranks and, and to World Cup success. We're starting to see that happen. Obviously, in Canada, for the first time, there's a giddiness about this golden generation of Canadian men's soccer. The Canadian women's team is spectacular in and of itself already. Uh, and it, they had a leg up because women's sport was so late in accepting women's soccer that we sort of almost got in on the ground floor of women's soccer, not the case with the men's game. Um, and uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of room for growth uh, professionally for men's soccer and win women's soccer too. I think women's professional soccer will, will, uh, will grow just as men's soccer is right now. And uh, this comes at the perfect time because guys like David Beckham certainly helped to get it on the map. Uh-huh. But uh, as a voice of Major League Soccer, I can tell you the quality of the game, even before Messi sets foot on, on North American soil, the quality of the game has greatly improved in Major League Soccer. Uh, and now there's other leagues like the Canadian Premier League too that, uh, that add to the amount of pros that are playing the game. So uh, I think the sky's the limit for soccer on this continent and Lionel Messi will be a little injection into the arm of, uh, of the sport as well. Could the Vancouver Whitecaps ever um, find a player like that uh, in regards to just needing the resources, the pull? Uh, could they ever uh, uh, attract a David Beckham or a Leo Messi? Quick answer is no. They don't, they don't have the financial wherewithal to pull off a deal like that, nor do they have the glitz and glam of, of Miami. As much as we are a spectacular global city, we don't have uh, the industry and the uh, the quote unquote sexiness. I, I don't mm-hmm. think that you know the shores of Miami, New York, or LA provide. Uh, but I, I I do think that you can find guys like Alfonso Davies again. I mean, uh, that was a big deal. Great player, even as a teenager for the Vancouver Whitecaps, and then they sold him for you know twenty twenty one million dollars. Uh, so there's there's those kinds of players, and I think. You know, a tier below that, I think the Vancouver Whitecaps might be able to pull off. Mm-hmm. I think a single player that's just one notch below that. Yeah, I mean, the the, the Whitecaps were in very serious talks about bringing in Chiellini, uh, who ended up in L.A. Uh, with LAFC uh, last year. Um, and there was an Italian tie with the head coach, Fanny Sertini, and, and uh, Chiellini. But 
But players like that, uh, towards the end of their career, that still might have a little bit uh, more to give. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's that's uh, that's absolutely possible. Final question: Will Messi play in Vancouver? Do you think, or or would there be second thoughts because of our turf field here at BC Place? Uh, there will be those for sure. Uh, now. Uh, We've had big names play. David Beckham came and played at BC mm-hmm. Place. Uh, Andrea Pirlo came and played at BC Place. Uh, you know, like th- that. We've seen the best come and play on the turf at BC Place. Will Messi? I don't know, but we've got a we've got an ace up our sleeve. In 2026, the World Cup will be in Vancouver, mm-hmm. played on grass at BC Place Stadium. Um, I've said this already on our show today, and it's, it's our poll question: well, do, you, do you think he'll play? Um, but there's an ace up the sleeve here. Convince the powers that be that we need a test run year to make sure that the turf, the grass turf, that is the real turf at BC Place Stadium will hold because we've never seen grass at BC Place. Mm-hmm. Put it in a year early. Have the BC Lions, have the Vancouver Whitecaps play an extra season on grass in 2025. Make sure the grass works for 2026 at the World Cup. And then we get two kicks of the can because they'll play the MLS season at BC Place in 2026 there as well. But let's broaden it because the Eastern teams don't play every Western team every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get two kicks of the can, double the chances of Lionel Messi playing at BC Place. And let's get that grass in there for 2025. Hey, fingers crossed. Blake, thank you. Anytime. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.